Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Hello again, friends. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. I'm John Russin, your host, and I'm here today with the craziest man I know, at least his life seems crazy, Pastor Frank Friedman. Frank, one day is even more crazy than the next, isn't it? How are things? Hey, things are going very well in spite of me. So <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I being in the way the Lord led me. Ah, my favorite verse. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> well, you know, Frank, we started this podcast a little more than a year and a half ago. It seems like it's been uh, less than that, but we've been doing this a while. And we dived in with a couple of series that we call kind of in the trenches of life. You remember those. We talked about fear. Uh, we talked about long grace. We spent a lot of weeks talking about pain. Mm. Then we did something a little different. We talked about yours and my journey, not only learning about Christ's life ourselves, but actually introducing it to our local body. We call that one liberating the church with his life. You remember that? That was fun. Yes, sir. And then we did a whole bunch of episodes on uh, what we call the power of story, in which we did kind of deep dives into the lives of everyday believers to learn more about their walk with Jesus and how they see him as Lord, Savior, and life. And then we spent uh, a while on what we call the one another's, those impossible imperatives and uh, how kingdom living should look on this earth. And then we took those lectures right to the lab and we dove into the book of Philemon and talk about restoring relationships. But my friend, uh, we've decided to do something different today, a new series. This is an oral commentary on the book of Colossians. You suggested that book, Frank. Tell us why you think this is something that we need to bring to our listeners. Well, John, there's a several reasons, you know, but when I read the book of Revelation and Jesus speaks to the churches in chapters two and three, there is a common thread in every one of those letters that he wrote to seven very different churches. And the common thread was, oh, I know your good works. Some of you are really busy. Some of you have reproved false teachers. Some of you have held a really good doctrine. But the common thread that he had against them, if you will, was that they had lost their first love. They had left Jesus out of the equation. And I think when we look at this world, and it's a wonderful world to live in, I often call it a playground, of course, because the enemy got involved, there is some aspect of jungle to it. But what we see can hinder what we cannot see. And what I mean by that, John, is the physical world can so dominate our lives that we don't see the spiritual or unseen world. And I just think the common thread of those seven churches is our thread too. We can be so busy, so wrapped up in the affairs of life that we just kind of miss 
the Lord Jesus, not in terms of having him as a savior, uh, not in terms of praying to him, studying about him, but in terms of really recognizing who he is and all that he longs to be to us. And if there was one book in the New Testament that calls us to Jesus, it is the book of Colossians. I would give it a theme, the exalted Jesus. So that's why, John, I'd like to see us come away from all that can distract us. And even in terms of coming away from doctrinal correctness, just to exalt Jesus in our lives with the goal that we would lay hold of him in a greater way by faith. Amen, brother. As I read through this book, two thoughts come to mind. One is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for everything in life. And I think the modern church is losing that. And then I think of the preeminence of Christ above all other false gods, philosophies. So these two thoughts, sufficiency and preeminence of Jesus, I see them as paramount in this little book. And frankly, my friend, I see them as paramount in the lives of the modern church, because as you and I have talked, we look at this church and I've traveled lots of places in the world. So I've seen lots of churches and lots of places. And I see that there's a slow but steady drift away from acknowledging the sufficiency and the preeminency of Christ. This is kind of what I hear. I hear, you know, Jesus, he has so much to offer, but you know, Jesus is not everything because Muhammad had some good teachings too. And don't forget Confucius and the Buddha. And, and so I remember as a young university student, first hearing about the Baha'i faith, the essential worth of all religions, the unity of all peoples. And I'm seeing that more and more and more, Frank, even in the modern church, mm -hmm. uh, there's so many, you've seen this too, who doubt some aspects of the sufficiency of Christ, even to the point of the famous proverb that isn't really a proverb, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> and there's another one that I see in every truck stop I stop at, God is my co-pilot. Mm -hmm. And so both of these things are just little tiny snippets, but they're reflections of the mindset of the modern church to drift away from Jesus as our everything. So when I dive into this book, Frank, that's what I hope comes out of our conversation. How about you? Yeah, John, I, I've looked at the church. One of the things is being in the role of a pastor is you don't just study the Bible. You study church. You study church history. But then you look at the church today with a, not a critical eye, but a discerning eye. And as I look back over the last oh, 60, 70 years of the modern church, I see a, a perpetual shifting. Let me just give you briefly what I'm, I'm saying, John. I think in the 50s and before that, there was very much a fundamentalist mindset in the church, a morality. It was do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, we had the counterculture break free into our society, the hippie Jesus love movement, and it was very short-lived, but we kind of discovered Jesus. But then we went into an age of knowledge. We had a marvelous thing born called a cassette. And of course, 
the young kids today don't know what that was. <laughs> yeah. But the cassette enabled Bible teaching to go around the world. And so it was the age of knowledge. But the age of knowledge kind of ran its course and it gave way. People began to see we need more than that. We need power. So we had the spirit power movement with the Pentecostal charismatic renewal and then that kind of gave way because the only way we have power is because of God. And so we ended up in a worship movement. And I think that's kind of giving way to a discovery of the new covenant and the grace of God. You have to be very careful because we can become enamored with the revelation instead of the revealer. Ah, yes. Yes. Uh, and so I think that's what's kind of I've seen. Uh, we tried morality, we tried uh, knowledge, we tried power, we tried worshiping worship. It made me feel great, but I became addicted to it because it wasn't Christ. And then we found revelation and it was exciting, but we have to land and live in and from the person of Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, this book, that he is preeminent. Uh, we desperately, I think, need to hear that every single one of us because there's so much that calls attention away from him. Oh, indeed there is. And you know, Frank, we tend to think that all these different twists and turns in our relationship with God are new to our generation or this century, but they're really not. Mm. Because as we unpack this book, we're going to see that some of the same wrestles, the same lies were present way back 2,000 years ago. Looking now at Colossians chapter 2, where Paul says, hey, make sure that nobody takes you captive to philosophy, you know, mm. worship of wisdom, mm. uh, and empty deceit, human traditions, all these things permeate the church today. Because on the flip side of all that, Paul says, because in Jesus is the whole fullness of God. That's the essence of God, the nature of God, not God's attributes. I looked at this, Frank. It's not the attributes or the actions of God, but he is God in the fullest sense of the word. And when we don't acknowledge that, we are just so liable to veer off into any one of these different eddies, I'll call them, the worship eddy and the knowledge eddy and the law eddy and, you know, the, the spirit and the power eddies, all these things are great, but they're not really focusing on Jesus' sufficiency. That's, that's where we're going to go in this book. Mm, that's a good place to go. It certainly is. All right. And so a little bit of background for those of us who have this kind of brain, and I do, um, a little bit about the, the city of Colossae, a very little, Frank, don't get worried. <laughs> uh, it's, it's no longer a city. It's kind of in ruins. It's, uh, it was in southwest Turkey, and it was the general region of all those seven cities that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. You mentioned all those cities before. It was actually a, a half a day's walk from Laodicea. So it's all in the same area, a pretty prosperous city. Uh, I read about wool and fabric production. And here's the thing that caught my attention. It was known for angel worship. And Paul will mm. mention that in Colossians 2, angel worship. And so uh, he's walking here, my friend, not into a Jewish synagogue, or he's not wrestling with Judaizers. He's walking here into a bunch of pagans. 
who are going to throw at him every false god, every twisted philosophy. And as I read through this book, and I read through the epistles, Frank, one of the things that just knocks my socks off is how Paul approached his missionary journeys, how Paul approached evangelism. He said in 1 Corinthians 9 that I want to be all things to all people, so by any means I might win some. Uh, but this guy really knew how to lift up Jesus in every possible circumstance. Mm -hmm. My goodness, what an ambassador, which is actually what he says. He calls himself an ambassador. And so uh, I remember back when I was a new Christian, the, the knowledge movement was well underway. And so we were uh, wrapped up in evangelism explosion, the Roman road, the four spiritual laws, you know, all these little cookie cutter approaches. And when I read through uh, the book of Acts and I look at some of these epistles, uh, all those approaches tend to crumble by the wayside in my mind because the apostle Paul knew Jesus, the preeminence of Jesus, and that's what he brought forward. It's really a refreshing thing for me to look at this. Absolutely. It's really what every one of us needs. I can't help but put two verses together, John. One from Colossians. We'll see maybe in a couple of weeks, depending on how quickly we move through it. But the verse in Colossians 3 that says, Christ is our life, not yeah. just Savior who gets us out of hell, uh, not just Lord whom we obey, but life, the provision of life itself and all that life requires for us and all that we need in order to have life. And I think of the other verse would be Romans 5, 8 through 10, where he saves us by his life. And that Greek word saved is sozo. In other words, John, this word should be translated, he makes us whole yeah. by his life. He brings everything we need to function as a human being the way God designed us to function back into our lives. All that Adam lost, in fact, even more so, I think, yeah. is now ours in Christ. Yeah, he doesn't restore what he lost. He gives him more than he ever had. Yeah, uh, going to be a great book. Going to be cool. Okay, let's go ahead and dive in. And what I'd like to do as we approach this, Frank, is that, you know, we could go verse by verse, but knowing you, we'd wind up going word by word. And we've been <laughs> doing this for years. And so yes, uh, as, as I've thought about this, study Bibles and commentaries kind of break up chunks. Mm -hmm. And so what I think we'd like to do is just kind of dive in to some of these chunks and, uh, and see what Father has to say for us. So let's go ahead and go in with the first part of chapter one, which is uh, the greeting. This is the first two verses. And so Paul calls himself an apostle. Uh, tell us about apostles, Frank. Who were they? And why did Paul begin his letters with his identity as an apostle? Well, I thought we could spend the rest of the time on Paul in the one word, but oh, okay, my, well, <laughs> and I'm teasing. Yeah. Uh, apostle, of course, it literally just means a sent one. So obviously somebody did the sending, so that would be God. But of course, all of us then are sent ones. We're all ambassadors. But the way Paul uses it here is that he was one of those original 12 chosen by the Holy Spirit, by the Lord Jesus Christ to be, as Ephesians 2 says it, the foundation 
of the church in terms of not that they are the foundation, but their teaching is. And their teaching was the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he was the replacement for Judas, who, of course, uh, listened to the enemy and self-destructed. And so God had chosen this man, Paul, who was a former Jew, a Pharisee, in fact. And we know from the book of Acts and Timothy that he hated the church, tried to eradicate the church. He was definitely on a high horse on his way to Damascus. And God knocked him off that high horse and said, son, you're persecuting me. And at that point, he said, who are you? And he said, I am the Lord Jesus. And Paul was never, ever the same. And so he was the one mostly used in the New Testament to write most of the letters and to found most of the churches. Fascinating, John, you know, it's an interesting thought. If you'll remember back to the days when Father first opened your eyes to your own journey, your own flesh ways of living, I trust you'll remember you said, oh my goodness, I've spent a lifetime using my brain as a weapon to keep people away. Do I stop being a professor and a PhD? Do you remember that? Yes, I remember and, that conversation. <laughs> yes. I think I pointed you to Paul because Paul was a hard charger, fiery orator, great leader before he became a believer. But after he was a believer, he was the same kind of guy. It yeah. was just that he had a different power source now and a different agenda and motive of life. And look at you, you stayed where you were and God magnified your role in a mighty way and literally used you all over the world in the original role you had chosen. So very much the same kind of uh, experience that Paul had. Yeah, I, I wanna ask you a little rabbit trail question, Frank. There are lots of collections of believers. Uh, I won't call them Christians, so let's call them collections of believers. And uh, they tend to throw around the word apostle. In fact, a lot of denominations and groups will use that word pretty freely. I personally kind of struggle with that because when I look at apostles, I see someone who has seen the risen Jesus. Mm -hmm. Remember when uh, the 11 remaining apostles decided to go on ahead and, and uh, roll the dice and they chose Matthias. They said, well, what do we need to have another replacement? Well, have they seen the risen Jesus? And have they received a, a call directly from him? And so I don't want to dump a whole lot on some of these other people, but uh, I think we need to be careful when we use the word apostle, because it's just such a powerful word. And they were given such authority to steer the early church, to craft the early church, to, to write scripture. That it's a, I, I hold that word in very high esteem. And when I think about how Paul got his, uh, if you remember in the first part of Galatians, he actually goes against those who say he's not real because uh, he didn't walk around with Jesus for three years. But boy, he, uh, he spent three years with Jesus in the backside of the desert and in Damascus being poured into by the Holy Spirit as to what the new covenant really was and how he had messed things up as a Pharisee. So what a powerful word, in my opinion, and uh, what a powerful man with a powerful message. Yes, you know, I, it's a rabbit trail, but I, I think you're right. I'm very concerned when I hear people call themselves apostles, 
because we know that was reserved for those original 12 from the book of Acts. But we also know from Hebrews 2 that God gave them power, miraculous signs and wonders to authenticate the writing that they were doing of scripture. In fact, it's very clear in Hebrews 2, it says God bore witness with them uh, to us by, by those who heard. So it was very clear there that those signs and wonders, miraculous healings and everything that was going on to confirm those who were writing the word. And we've got to be very careful that we not give ourselves titles. Uh, I, I sometimes I wonder, you know, we're not supposed to judge the heart. I'm, I don't want to do that. But I think sometimes we like those titles because it gives us an authority over others that, you know, we really shouldn't be wanting to have. I don't ever want to tell anybody what to do. I want to turn their eyes to scripture and let God tell them what to do. But sometimes that happens in the body of Christ. So yeah, I'm with you. I'm a little suspect of people who use that word in a modern day vein that they could be in an apostle. That's right. And uh, it sets up people into the eyes of, uh, of other believers as authorities. And mm -hmm. so instead of, as you said, turning to Jesus and seeking his truth for them in their circumstances, they tend to turn to people. And boy, that's just not a good situation to, to be in. Our focus should be on, uh, on Christ and what his life looks like in us. Because to be honest, Frank, you and I could face the very same circumstance. And Father might place in me a desire to do A, and then place in you a desire to do B. And they could be different. And both of us are right because the Spirit is working through our unique personalities to do different things in, in, in different times and places. And so we can't really approach uh, this life as a Christian with a cookie cutter, can we? No, God is uh, working in each and every individual life, uh, giving, we know from 1 Corinthians, different giftedness, different roles, because the, he wanted to have an interdependence in the body of Christ where we would all need each other and function in that interdependence, all drawing from God for others to his glory. So that's wonderful right. truth. It is. Now he extends to these Colossian believers, grace and peace, grace and peace to you. I was raised a Catholic, so were you. And when I think about uh, somebody extending grace, I think of these sacraments, you know, a discreet time and place where you just get a dollop of grace, kind of like scooping it out of the ice cream bucket and you get a dollop of grace. But this is not what he's talking about, is it? So when the apostle extends grace and peace to these believers, what's going through his mind? What is he wishing for them? <laughs> Primarily, it's the idea that you've been delivered from the law. Uh, we don't live by the law anymore. Uh, man chose the law back in the Garden of Eden. God gave Moses the law to show man what he had chosen. The law was, in fact, an instrument that man could never keep. So the law drove man away from the law by saying, hey, I can't do this. Is there a better way? And then God reintroduced man back to an economy of living where man lived in intimate relationship with God. So the law drives us back to Jesus and Jesus has the market cornered on life. So in its elementary stage, grace is deliverance from the law 
which we had chosen, back to living from God. But grace ultimately, as we know from Titus 2, is the person of Jesus Christ. The grace of God appeared and brought salvation to all men. And the grace of God that appeared was, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's in us to teach us and to uh, live in us as we trust him. And that's why grace is always spoken of as an abundance, the abundance of grace, Romans 5, 17, grace upon grace in John 1, 16. You know, people say, well, that sounds hyper. And we say, of course it is, because the life of God cannot be contained. It is always a hyper life, a super abundant life, as Jesus himself said it in John 10. So, yeah, he's... <laughs> He's saying we got back to living with God. That's in essence what he's yeah. after. You know, if I could add to that, Frank, in all these epistles, Paul wishes people grace and peace. And so I look at it as a constant reminder because we tend as people, as humans, to get distracted and our attention drifts and we could lose our focus. And I look at this as a constant reminder. Hey, you are who you are because of grace. And no matter what your circumstances are, there is peace because peace is a person and he lives inside of you. I think of the blessings that were given in the patriarchs on their kids, uh, reminders of who they were, reminders uh, of truth about them and about their heritage, about their history, about what God wants to do for them. So I look at that as a, as a arm around the shoulder, pat on the back. Hey, let me remind you of what's true about you. Hmm. And I see that in, in practically all of his epistles. Uh, and I, it's just an amazing heart of compassion because he knows in every one of these letters, Frank, that he's going to have a bone to pick with them about something. And uh, he wants them to know that, hey, despite all this, you, you still have Jesus. You still have the abundance of grace. You still have the truth living inside of you. And so this is going to be okay. You just need to focus back on Jesus. Mm. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. All right, my friend, let's dive a little further. He begins with this next section in verse three, and those smarter than I call it the thanksgiving and prayer. So let's look at that. This is uh, what I see as a very interesting beginning because he has a laundry list of things he needs to talk to these folks about, but he doesn't begin with that. He's going to teach them later and address their confusion. But that's not how he starts, Frank. I love how he starts. He says, hey, when I think about you, I always thank my God for you. Wow. You know, and so when we come into a situation where there's a problem, someone calls us into a counseling arena and uh, things are falling apart, the first thing you want to do is dive right in and find the issue, fix the problem. But our brother Paul doesn't do it that way. He says, hey, man, I want to begin by thanking God for you. I praise you for your faith and your love. Man, your reputation has spread to me all the way into Rome. Wow, what a way to begin, Frank. If you and I were sitting in a room and we were at odds together, I would be just so diffused by hearing someone say, hey, I want to tell you how great job you guys have done together over the years. What a way to begin <laughs> a corrective letter, man. What a heart of compassion. 
Well, John, you know, it's interesting, but one of the things about becoming a believer and then diving deep into Father's word is we understand humanity now a lot better than we did before. And so we can look way back to Genesis, for example, and find that the very first thing Adam and Eve did after sinning was put on the mask, put on the fig leaves. You know, mask wearing is nothing new. It's been going on for as long as uh, since the fall. Uh, the, the idea there is I'm afraid. Uh, if you really know who I am, if you really see me for who I am, you might reject me. And so we understand that all mankind lives in fear. We understand that all mankind live under a law system now. So, and every man knows he doesn't keep it as well as he should. And so the moment somebody says, hey, can I talk to you? Instantly, we think, what did I do wrong? Uh, we have a mindset of shame, a mindset of guilt, a mindset of condemnation. And that's one of the reasons we wear the mask. And so what Paul is doing here, which I think is a great lesson for all of us, is whenever we have to talk to somebody about something hard or uh, an issue of correction, we should always first make sure that they understand that this is not about guilt, not about shame, not about judging, not about condemnation. It's about love. The love that would care enough to step into somebody else's life, put your arm around them, reassure them. That way you earn the right to say that word, which may be a little hard to hear, but a lot easier to hear when you follow the model of that great contemporary theologian, Mary Poppins, you know, a spoonful <laughs> of sugar, you know, helps that medicine go down. You know, John, I look at first Corinthians 13, love hopes all things, love believes all things. One of the things I try to do with people when I have to share something with them is say, Hey, I love you and I believe in you. That's disarming for them. Now we can have that arm around arm kind of talk. I would like to share a story before I turn this back to you, John. You know, Howard Hendricks was one of the great communicators in Christendom in the last century. And Howard once told his testimony and he said he was an incorrigible kid from a broken home, his teachers in school would pass him just to get rid of him. And he wasn't learning anything. He was a rotten kid. And he said when he went into the sixth grade, his first day of school, the teacher called out the role, you know, little Johnny Smith here, you know, Mary Jones present. And then she said, Howard Hendricks. And he said, yeah. And she stopped and she said, so you're Howard Hendricks. Yeah. <laughs> and she said these words and he said he never forgot them. She said, I've heard a lot about you, son, and I don't believe a word of it. And Howard said that was the turning point in his life. He credits that woman with saving his life. He went on to share in his testimony that he would 
bust himself for that woman. And he said that he can remember looking in those little windows in the door, you know, out to the hallway, they had those little teeny windows. And he said he would see his former teachers looking in on him with amazement because he was sitting there at his desk, fully clothed, doing his homework. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, you are, you are so right, Margaret. What a great story because uh, it is so important to bring down the tone of every conversation so that you can actually address the issue without boiling over everywhere. And that's what Paul does. Now, let me read these verses, Frank. It says, we, we always thank God for you ever since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And we heard of the love that you have for all the saints. You know, so no matter what kind of deceptive belief is cooking around their church, he begins with, hey, man, your reputation precedes you. And then he says this, and he says, because of your faith in Jesus and the love you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you at heaven. I know our times are starting to get short, but I want to focus on that one word because that seemed to be the anchor for them. They had a hope laid up for them in heaven. And that seems like it's presented as the root for their faith and their love. And what I want to do is, I want to give a very, very loose paraphrase of these verses. And it goes like this. You've heard the true message about the glorious hope that's ours. So now, no matter what you face, cling to that truth so that that hope will remain real to you always, present to you always, and always encouraging to you. So that hope was a root. Frank, explain to our listeners what that hope means and why it was so critical to them and to us. Well, John, I think I'd have to take the word hope in the context of the rest of Scripture. And I think the problem for many of us is in our American culture, we have a usage for the word hope. And we use it in the sense of, I hope to win, that I win the lottery. You know, I'm hoping for something that is pretty far-fetched. Uh, very likely it's not going to happen, but I'm going to put a semblance of belief in that it could happen. And boy, that's a terrible way to live if you're seeking to live a life of power and righteousness and godliness uh, because it's going to put it all on a pipe dream. And hope biblically is never used that way. Uh, the Greek word is elpidos, and it means confidence. So it's not that we're hoping for something that might happen, but probably isn't going to, but it's that we have put a hope in something that is guaranteed, has already happened, and nothing is going to hinder it from it being played out in our lives to our ultimate good and to the glory of God. And of course, that means hope is Jesus Christ. And you know what? We have a theme verse, John, as you know, for this podcast, we have an anchor. And the thing about an anchor is you're not taking that boat anywhere when that thing is anchored. It is secure. And I guess that's maybe a great synonym. Maybe I can throw it back to you with that, the idea that uh, hope is actually security. It certainly is, my friend. You know, First Peter, our anchor verse, 
he calls it a living hope. And that word for living is uh, comes from the same root of Zoe, which is life as God lives it. So this is a hope that's rooted in God, and it's infused with his very life. So listening to your talk, I'm putting myself in the place of the Colossians, wrestling with all these strange philosophies, pagan religions, angel worship, and chances are I'm going to stumble along the way with some of these because I'm living in a pagan culture. I'm surrounded by people who don't believe as I do. So I'm going to stumble every once in a while. But when I know that my future is sure, it is guaranteed. It is a confident expectation. It's certain. And the life that comes from God is certain in me. That gives me tremendous encouragement to stand up dust off and say, yeah, I didn't do that very well, but I know the truth. And I'm now motivated to, to live and make a different choice next time. I mean, what an encouragement to have that level of hope. So that's what Paul leverages as he's talking to them. That's the root for their choices to live a godly life is the hope that is already promised them. Wow. That makes me want to stop sinning. <laughs> uh, yeah, that idea, John, of not looking at the way things are in our physical world, but as the way they are in the unseen world, because in the unseen world, it's already done. And that means that we can bring that into the seen world and say to ourselves and to others, yeah, might not have happened the way we wanted to, might not have made the best decision, but where we are right now is not the end of the story. We've already seen the end and it ends well. And we can, through him, stand up right now and start walking again. And that's a, that's a great, great confidence. Amen. Certainly is. Well, friend, I'm going to take that as your wrap-up comment unless you've got something else you care to share with us today. No, we'll wait for next time. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, dear friends, we are honored that you joined us today on the Our Resolute Hope podcast. Thanks so much for letting us kind of share our thoughts with you on these uh, introductory verses in the book of Colossians. And so uh, please check out our website, ourresolutehope.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Pop us an email, sign up for our newsletter. Let us know what's on your mind, what's on your heart. There's a place on our website. You can reach out to us. You can do it anonymously. Uh, you can leave your name and email. We'll get back to you. We'd love to hear from you. Of course, check us out on all of our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram. We've got our own YouTube channel. So please check that out. And of course, your favorite podcast home, iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon Music. And as Frank and I have already commented, we close this time and always with our reminder from Hebrews 6.19 that we have a hope as an anchor for our souls. You know, Peter calls it a living hope in chapter one of his first epistle. We call it a resolute hope, a bedrock hope. And that hope is Jesus Christ himself. So today and always, choose hope and choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. 
You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.